Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel live stream, and it's so good to share the Word of God with you. Thanks for tuning in. Great to have some worship today. Stick around for the song afterwards as well. Um, yeah, it's been a challenge to not be able to meet together face-to-face for a while, but I pray that you're standing perfect and complete in all the will of God, that you're increasing in love for one another and for all. I've just been reading through 1 Thessalonians in my devotions, and it's been so cool. Just encourage you to be in the Word, be encouraging one another in prayer and through contacting, reaching out to those in need. And just praise the Lord that we have the Holy Spirit who's helping us, He guides us, He provides for us, He ministers to our hearts wherever we are and whatever we're doing. Nothing can separate us from His love. So we're continuing in our study of Luke. This is the third sermon from this chapter, Luke chapter 7. And I encourage you to, as we go through it, to study each chapter, just to read through, because there's this really neat flow of theme, the theme and ideas and how the things that Jesus taught were connected to what was happening. And it's, it's all related, it's all interconnected, and we'll see that with this passage, because it began with Jesus healing the sick servant of the centurion. Uh, then he traveled to Nain to raise the widow's only son from the dead. And when the news of these miracles reached the ears of John the Baptist, he sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Because Jesus wasn't living up to his expectations of what the Messiah should be in bringing judgment. And that day, Jesus, it says, opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. And he told those messengers, he said, tell John what you've seen and heard that I have opened the eyes of the blind. I am delivering. I am fulfilling the word of God spoken through the prophets. And then he added on in Luke 7, 23, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And he addressed these listeners that many didn't believe him. They rejected John's baptism. So they were hardened against his message. And then he concluded his remarks in Luke 7, 35 by saying, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Through the gospel, harlots were made chaste, and tax collectors were generous, and people who were selfish were fundamentally changed to serving and and helping one another. Like Believing in Christ had this transformational impact in the lives of his hearers through the gospel. And this is something the law could never do. It could never change the heart of a person. It couldn't change your desires or intent or your motive and Through Christ, there was a purifying effect and a change of mind. And so, through Christ, sinners could enter into a relationship with the living God. That they have an understanding of God's word, they're equipped to serve, and that love marks their lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is quick and powerful, that it uh, it speaks to our greatest needs and that it reveals you to us. And I pray, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts, that we'd have uh, listening ears, and we'd receive everything that you say, and rejoice to do it. We praise you, Lord, that you are awesome, and your ways are perfect. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. 
And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. The Pharisees were largely skeptical and many strongly opposed to Jesus. But we see here a Pharisee who will later learn is named Simon. He invites Jesus over for a meal. Extending hospitality among the Jews and the ancient world was a common practice. And even towards strangers, it was... It brought honor upon the host to be hosting and serving his guests. Like Abraham, it was in the door of his tent and he sees these travelers coming, these strangers. He runs to greet them. He offers them hospitality and food and he serves them personally. And the words of Job, they also reveal this practice of making room at his table for hungry people in Job 31, 16, 17. And 22, he says, if I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. Obviously, he was very adamant that he had always helped the widow and the fatherless and they had a place at his table if they were hungry. He didn't withhold food from them. And uh, I read this in the Jewish Encyclopedia, which tells us of a practice in Jerusalem. It says, to sit long at the table so as to give an opportunity to the belated poor to enter and partake of the meal was regarded as a highly meritorious act for which one's days on earth would be prolonged. In Jerusalem, the custom prevailed of displaying a flag in front of the door, thereby indicating that the meal was ready and that guests might come in and partake thereof. The removal of the flag was a sign that the meal was finished and that the guests should cease entering. Now, modern Western hospitality is really an invitation-only affair, that it's a bit rude to just drop by around mealtimes, especially just imposing yourself. But it wasn't seen as an imposition in the Jewish culture. Uh, strangers were invited to come in. Uh, if there was a notable visitor who had come uh, to the city, it was not uncommon for people to gather and watch and even eat from the table as they listened to the rabbi speak. And so they would uh, enter the house, receive the hospitality of having your feet washed and uh, remove your sandals, and then you'd lounge around this low table propped up on your side and eating and drinking and discussing and so it says a woman of the city, she heard that Jesus sat at the table of the Pharisee. We're not told her name. The only thing that defines her is really her sin. We know she's a notable sinner. It seems like that defined her. It's true that all have sinned, but her sin was well known and made her infamous. Now this scene is distinct from that that's discussed in Matthew, Mark, and John, where Jesus was anointed in a similar fashion. We know by Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus, in the house of Simon the leper. It happened just before the Passover and uh, Christ's crucifixion. This is a different occasion. Um, now the Bible, it teaches Jesus cleansed the temple at least two times. So it's not really surprising that he would be anointed with this fragrant oil on multiple occasions, being one worthy of such hospitality and love. So he's sitting in the Pharisee's house. This woman brings this alabaster flask of fragrant oil, which would have been expensive. At first, she stood behind him. She's just crying, weeping. Then she's kneeling. Her tears are falling onto the feet of Jesus. She's wiping them with her hair. 
She's kissing the feet. She's anointing them with this special oil. Kissing, a sign of reverence, a sign of affection. And I really don't know what I find more remarkable, what this woman is doing in a public place and how she's openly weeping and anointing the feet of Jesus, kissing his feet, or that Jesus let her do it, that he's allowing it. And it seems like he's really paying her no mind. He doesn't seem uh, offended. Uh, like when you're sitting at the dinner table and someone comes behind you and grabs your shoulders for a bit of a, a squeeze, you may cringe and move away. It may make you uncomfortable to be touched by somebody. But can you imagine somebody crying tears on your feet and wiping them, like touching your feet while you're at the table? That's really out of the question, right? But there are instances in scripture where kissing, it is seen as a reverential uh, act, even a pledge of service. We see that in, in more recent times with like the kissing of the hand or the kissing of the king's ring. 1 Kings 19.18, it says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So to kiss the calves, as they did in Jeroboam's day, was to show allegiance, servitude, and affection towards those uh, idols. And David prophetically wrote of the Son of God in Psalm 2, 11, and 12. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So kiss the Son. Kiss the Savior, the Christ. It's like in this table of, of religious rulers and his uh, so Simon's friends, the sinner is the one who has it right. She's the one who's recognizing Christ as the one to be kissed, the one to show affection towards and to love. Luke seven thirty nine. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisee who invited Jesus, he knew the local woman. His judgment of her put a negative judgment now upon Christ. He had these ambivalent feelings toward Jesus, but they take a negative turn because of Jesus allowing the woman to touch him. Because he allowed a sinner to touch him, he's like, well, if he was receiving divine revelation from God, he would know who this woman is. He would know what she's done and that... Um, he would not allow that if he was a holy man, if he was a man of God. And in the eyes of the Pharisee, not only had Jesus been defiled, but he'd been disqualified as a prophet because of what he allowed. And isn't it odd how we can shift the sinner, the sin of the sinner to the blameless one, right? He's finding fault with Jesus who did nothing wrong. He only did what was right. And the irony of this whole scene is Simon is in his mind, it says he was thinking to himself, he's criticizing Jesus for allowing the woman to touch him, that he didn't know the woman, but Jesus knew the woman and he knew the thoughts that Simon was thinking. He's going to call him out on it. It reminds us that God does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Simon's unspoken words were just as clear to Jesus as the woman touching his feet and smelling that perfumed oil. I like how the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary puts Simon's thinking. It says, ha, I have him now. He plainly knows nothing of the person he allows to touch him. And so he can be no prophet. Not so fast, Simon. 
Thou hast not seen through thy guest yet, but he has seen through thee. We don't know the motives for Simon inviting Jesus to his house, but Jesus knew all about him. Now, it's important to point out that Simon's not charging the woman with doing the wrong thing. She's doing something that was culturally acceptable. It was a sign of love and devotion, uh, but he rejected the credibility of Jesus for what he allowed the woman to do. And I think, personally, that um, when, we, when I see or when we see uh, acts of devotion and love towards God, that's something we haven't thought of or something we're unwilling to do, there is an offense in our flesh. We can be confronted by that. There's this bristling, like, and we have to put that off. Be mindful of saying, hey, this person, we are all sinners, and shouldn't we show love? and grace and goodness toward Christ. And maybe you've been in a prayer meeting where somebody you're praying about whatever and someone just breaks down and they're sobbing uncontrollably and there's part of you that says, hey, pull yourself together or that's off topic or something. Um, We feel uncomfortable about an outward display of affection that we're not connecting with. And weeping, it may not be something that you do often for any reason, but Maybe you're one not prone to weeping and you think, well, how could someone with the love of God remain so stoic and unmoved by what God has done? So it's very easy for us to be judging one another if you're weeping, if you're not weeping, what you're doing, what you're allowing, but really our focus ought to be upon Christ and Jesus, his love was the same towards the Pharisee who invited him, a sinner, and towards the woman who lavished such affection upon him. Also a sinner. He's the true judge of all, but he didn't allow sin or censure to prevent him from receiving love and giving correction. Luke 7, verse 40, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One he owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. I love verse 40. It says, it begins with him saying, answering him. Now we know Simon didn't say anything out loud, but he answers the thoughts of his heart. And he says, I have something to say. And that's grace, isn't it? That he would speak to him. Simon says, hey, teacher, master, say it. And he holds forth this parable of a creditor who had two debtors, people who owed him money. One owed about 500 denarii, the other 50. And that would be, a denarius would be one day's wage. So it's a difference of about two years of wages to two months of wages. And it says the debtors lacked the means to pay, so he freely forgave them both. He didn't renegotiate. He didn't make one of them his slave. He didn't make them his slaves for a period of time. Um, I mean, can you imagine that? Like, because you don't have the money to pay, okay, you don't have to pay anything. I freely forgive you. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love that kind of creditor, right? Um, In those days, you could make a person a slave up to six years under Jewish law. Their property, their possessions could be seized. Their children could be sold as slaves. Creditors were not generally loved in any way, but hey, you would love the person, you would admire the person highly who freely forgave you what you could not pay. 
Jesus says, tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon, he plays along. He says, I suppose the one he forgave more. Jesus responded, you have rightly judged. And Jesus establishes the degree we love others is largely tied to the appreciation we have for what they've done for us or how they've contributed to us in some way. They've benefited us. It's reasonable that the one who was forgiven 500 denarii had 10 times greater reason to love the creditor than the one who was forgiven only 50. I remember going out to dinner in a restaurant in the States years ago uh, and was pleasantly surprised with the waiter whom I will just call Dan. Uh, he had been very attentive and prompt all night. And, and then he just upped the ante. He brought out all these desserts for free for our whole group. Do you suppose that I thought to myself, I'll never come back here. I certainly don't want Dan to be our server next time. No, I went back there several times. And if I ever had my choice of server, I would have chosen Dan because of the, the, the free desserts that he gave. Uh, the excellent service. And, and you, you'll choose one shop or another over another just because of a small discount. If they'll give you a couple dollars cheaper, four cents per liter, you'll prefer this, uh, buying petrol from this station rather than that one. Freely giving, that takes things up a whole new level of appreciation. And I would call this admiration. Uh, Webster defines that as wonder mingled with pleasing emotions, esteem, love, or veneration, a compound emotion excited by something novel, rare, great, or excellent applied to persons and their works. It often includes a slight degree of surprise. Wouldn't you say that freely forgiving someone, freely forgiving, is something novel in our world today? That it's something you would love to be the beneficiary of, freely forgiving? When we've been freely forgiven a debt we could not pay, it's an unexpected blessing because we know we're on the hook for it. We, we should have to pay it, but it prompts us to admire the giver more than the gift because we realize we're not entitled to such grace. Luke 7, 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus finally turns his attention to the woman who has been weeping and washing his feet and kissing him, anointing his feet with oil. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I mean, Simon's been looking at her and thinking about her the whole time. And how he, he sinfully judged her by her past. He's sinfully judging Jesus to not even be a prophet when he's the Messiah because he's allowing this person to touch him. And he uses the generous deeds of the woman to expose his own hypocrisy. He did a good thing to invite Jesus over for a meal, something other Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead doing. But Jesus shows by his statements that Simon had not even offered the customary hospitality to a guest. Now, it's customary in our culture if someone comes to your house to offer them a drink, to offer them a seat. In Jesus' day, the host would provide the water for guests to wash their feet. He would greet them with a kiss. 
they would anoint their head with a little oil because in these arid and hot lands, uh, oil was used from antiquity to soothe the skin, to, ma to make it more radiant. It was commonly applied after washing, like you'd put on a, uh, a moisturizer after you take a shower. Now, I, I don't get in a moisturizer much, but I know some of you guys uh, are all into that kind of thing. Now, Simon, he hadn't done any of these things for Jesus. Jesus wasn't offended by this lack of hospitality or his slackness, but he strikes a contrast between what Simon didn't do and how this woman went way beyond what was even customary. It may be, we don't know, it may be that the woman was so moved because Jesus had been denied. He had been uh, denied such hospitality. Simon gave Jesus no water for his feet. The woman, she washed his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. Simon did not greet Jesus with a kiss, which would have been customary. But this woman, she's kissing his feet. He says, since I came in. Simon, he didn't provide olive oil for his head or his face. But the woman, it says she anointed his feet with fragrant oil. The conduct of this sinner, this woman... It outshone the self-righteous Pharisee in every way. I imagine that if Simon had been entertaining Abraham or Moses, there would have been no expense spared to show them every uh, benefit. And Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus does not deny the woman was a sinner. She, he admits freely he confirms she has, had, she has sinned much, but her love for Christ, this lavish, generous display in public, was evidence she had been forgiven much. She had received much forgiveness from God. On the flip side, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Jesus did not say the woman was a greater sinner than Simon, but it's evident she had received much more forgiveness from him than Simon had. When we sit in the judgment seat, when we start forming decisions about other people, we, when we elevate ourselves to judge, we're sitting in a seat that is God's place, and we also exclude ourselves from the judgment. And so we can be blind to our own hypocrisy and our faults. Had Simon been aware of his great sin and his need for salvation and forgiveness, and the nature of Jesus as the true Messiah, he would have treated him very differently. He would have extended love to him. At our best, we have never extended to Christ the common courtesy he deserves because he's worthy of all love and all respect and honor. And I ask you, is your love for Christ like this woman who had this brokenness for sin, who had, had repentance, but in private. I remember years ago, I would, when I was a youth pastor, there would be a very marked difference in the response of kids uh, if there was an audience or not. If they had an audience of their peers and, and with the emotion of camp, they would act very differently than when we were in private or in a small group. It's one thing to wash or kiss feet in public with the cameras rolling, but what about in the house of a Pharisee where you are really unwelcome and your presence is not preferred? 
The Enduring Word commentary, it says this, The Simon the Pharisee did not see the woman as she was, a humble sinner seeking forgiveness, pouring out love for Jesus, because he looked at her as she had been, a notorious sinner. It is not easy for us to blot out a past and to free ourselves from all prejudice resulting from our knowledge of that past. Yet that is exactly what the Lord does. And he does so not unrighteously, but righteously. He knows the power of his own grace and that it completely cancels the past and it gives its own beauty to the soul. It's one thing to forgive, to choose to love those who have wronged you. It's another thing to give love to God for how he's forgiven you. But what about when you are the one aware of your many sins and you have this notorious past? You're more aware of your past sins, your current struggles, your failings more than anyone else. And if Simon can make a false judgment concerning Christ, we can make incorrect judgments of ourselves, imagining that we're forever tainted by our past, that we always need to be defined by the sins that we've committed. Child of God, who are you to overrule the judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, who has atoned for your sins, who has washed you clean, who has anointed you with his Holy Spirit and declared you righteous by his grace? Is your word greater than his? Why should you listen to the opinions of Simon, yourself, or Satan when Jesus has offered you as a sinner forgiveness? to have the slate wiped clean, to have these debts you could never pay washed away and to be, have his righteousness given to you by grace because you trust in him. There is no saint who is not also a sinner. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save those who broke, have broken God's laws, who have lied, who have stolen, who have had idols. We must own our sins and repent if we will be forgiven. Now, how profitable would it be to make a doctor's appointment because you've been passing a lot of blood and you're feeling really weak and sick? But when you show up to the doctor's office and the doctor says, okay, now you've, uh, how can I help you? What, what are the symptoms? And you're a little embarrassed because you don't want to have a full physical, so you kind of just talk about your acne. Well, I've, you know, I've just had a lot of acne lately. And you never really get to the point. And you can go out of there and go to the chemist and buy some things for your complexion. But unless you were to admit that there is an internal problem, you would never, the doctor would have no idea. Now, God, he knows it. And he, he allows us to come before him. And he, he invites us to repent of our sins and to cry out, to weep and confession. Your confessions do, do not surprise him because he knows the reality of your sin to a far greater extent than you do. But having been forgiven, those who have been washed clean, they will respond in love towards Christ. They will demonstrate that love openly. 
Otherwise, we're like Simon. He reminds me of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 30, 20. It says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Sin for sinners, it's like eating a meal. Is that meal going to tide you over forever? No, until dinner time. And then you get hungry again. And it's like nothing to just drink down sin like water. And we justify our need for that sin. But through Christ, we have forgiveness. We have freedom. We have deliverance. We have salvation. We have hope. We have a hope for... He, he doesn't erase our past. No, it's good to know that you're a sinner. However, you do not need to be burdened down by it. You don't need to be ruled or defined by it anymore because he's made you a new creation through him. Luke 7, 48. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus addressed the woman before all the people at the table and those who were listening in. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And this takes us back to Luke chapter five, when Jesus said a similar thing to a paralyzed man who was lowered before a group of people as he was teaching in a house. He, he said, what's easier to say to this paralyzed man, um, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed, rise and walk. And of course, it would be much more difficult. It'd be impossible to say to a paralyzed man, rise and walk, unless you had spiritual power to heal him. And Jesus said, to show you that I have the power to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your, rise, take up your bed and walk. Those who sat at the table, when Jesus said to the woman, uh, your sins are forgiven, they said, who is this who forgives sins? Because only God has the power to forgive sins. And thus Jesus publicly declared his divinity. And he said to the woman, it was not her good deed. It was not her tears. It was not her generosity. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Forgiveness of sin, salvation. That's a free gift we receive from God by grace. And we can make the mistake that um, we can believe that God's forgiveness of our sins is dependent upon our good efforts or our ability to stop sinning or to earn God's favor, to prove that we're worthy. But the reality is Jesus is the worthy one. His blood has paid the price for, this, for, the, for the debt of sin we could never pay. Her faith was demonstrated by her actions. It was an expression of her love and gratitude for what Jesus had done for her. Now, when someone has given you a gift, uh, you appreciated and admired them. How much more should we forgive God who has given us eternal life and forgiveness of all of our sin? And we're able to go in peace because Jesus is our peace. The townsfolk, they probably held the same opinion as the woman before this meeting and after. They saw her as a sinner. But their opinions of her did not matter because her Savior had forgiven and accepted her. She could go in peace and rest in the forgiveness and grace she had through Jesus. So in this chapter, we have Jesus healing the sick servant of the centurion, raised a dead man to life. He opened the eyes of the blind. He delivered people from demons. But this forgiveness of sins, this is the greatest work because it's the one deed that will endure forever. The man who was ill and was healed, he would 
eventually get sick again. The man who died and Jesus raised to life, he would eventually die and be buried. Those eyes that uh, Jesus opened would one day be closed also in death. Demons, Jesus taught, they can come back to their old habitations that have been swept clean with their buddies. But forgiveness of sins, that's eternal. It's not just a salvaging of the past, it's redemption. It's a new life. It's a future and a hope that we have Jesus who is even now at the right hand of the Father preparing a place for us to be with him forever because of what he accomplished on Calvary and because of the gospel. Now, can you imagine this? A person who had been forgiven the 500 denarii, keeping that old ledger that proved they were so deep in debt for the purpose of lamenting and weeping over it. Like, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have allowed myself to be in such debt? My life is ruined. Wouldn't that be ridiculous and tragic for someone to do that? Or when the, the, you get that SMS, like, you owe, you know, last due, final notice, you owe this money, and, and you shut off your phone service, and you try to hide because you don't want to deal with the creditors. Or they're knocking on the door to repossess your stuff, and, and you're cowering from them, and you're afraid of them when you could say, talk to my father because he paid for it through the blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who has delivered you. He has saved you. Really, the reason for keeping the ledger, it would be much more practical for the purpose of rejoicing over, reminding you of the goodness and the grace of God who's freely forgiven you that debt that you could not pay. So it turns turns your focus away from, oh, I owed this great debt. I made these mistakes to look who forgave me everything for free because he's good and gracious and he loves me. Believer, never forget that you are a sinner freely forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus that provided that atonement for a debt you could not pay. So instead of lamenting our past, it's fitting for us to consider how can I demonstrate my love for Jesus today? Not so other people can see my devotion. Not to prove to Simon I'm a changed person, but in gratefulness and thanksgiving to Jesus for all he's done for you. He's done everything. He's freely forgiven us. I want to conclude with a quote from Manners and Customs of Bible Lands by Fred Wright. It's a cool story. It says, Dr. Cyrus Hamlin, an American missionary in the East, was entertained by a governor. The host took a piece of roast mutton and handed it to the missionary, saying as he did so, now do you know what I have done? In answering his own question, he went on to say, by that act, I have pledged you every drop of my blood, that while you are in my territory, no evil shall come to you. For that space of time, we are brothers. The psalmist felt utterly secure, though he had enemies close by him, when he knew that God was his host, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Jesus has done so much more for us than offering us a meal. He's given his own flesh and blood so that we can repent and be forgiven of our sins. We can become children of God through the gospel. No matter what we've done in the past... It's not our sin, it's not Simon, it's not ourselves that define us, but our Savior who's preparing a place for us, who has called us by name, who has filled us with the Holy Spirit as a down payment that we will be, we have been redeemed.
Do you love Jesus like this woman? She loved much because she had been forgiven much. And what this woman did was nothing in comparison to what Jesus had done for her. He is far more worthy to be praised than the woman to be copied. But let's follow her example. Having been loved, having been freely forgiven, having been saved by Jesus, let's serve him. Let's love him. Let's give him the attention and time he deserves. And let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for the love that he has poured out on us. And we so appreciate, uh, beyond words, all that you've accomplished and how faithful you are, not to continually hold our past wrongs over our heads. Lord, when we're reminded and tempted to give space to despair over our past, I pray that you would uh, turn our eyes toward Jesus that we would repent and we would walk in newness of life, that we'd walk in the way that fully pleases you, we'd grow in grace and knowledge, that we would be the children of God you've called us to be. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you not only forgive, but you receive our praise and honoring of you. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, I pray you would uphold them, you would strengthen them, and that we would rejoice and praise you for all the good things you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.